Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to Endurance Month here on the Science of Sport podcast with myself, Mike Finch, and uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And when I say Endurance Month, I'm talking about February this year, where we're going to be focusing very much on the subject of endurance and uh, defining what it is first up, and then uh, all the challenges that come along with endurance events, and uh, focusing a little bit on uh, some of the nutrition and the uh, fluid intake that you need to do. That'll be happening over the rest of the month, and also hopefully some interesting interviews with some of the experts in that area, and then a chance at the end of the month for you to ask us questions about your endurance and potentially then taking that through to a podcast and uh, answering some of those questions towards the end of the month. So welcome, Ross. Um, this is a subject which I guess is as close to your heart as is mine because we are both uh, so-called endurance athletes in many ways, aren't we? <laughs> endurance uh, hobbyists. Endurance hobbyists, that's probably a good term. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we're going to try and define endurance. Let's not Tack on the definition of athletes <laughs> on over and above that one. Yeah, well, let, let, let's, let's first start with, the, with this because when we were preparing for this podcast, we were trying to figure out exactly what it was and what when does something become endurance. So my definition of that was anything beyond 90 minutes fit for me feels like endurance because when you talk about um, fueling s- strategies, they always say that you, you've you used up your fuel within 90 minutes of starting an exercise plan, therefore endurance then becomes a factor. So for me, the definition of endurance is anything more than 90 minutes of exercise. Mm. How, would you, how would you define it? Can my, you define mine it? Mine is much more liberal and all-encompassing. Okay. As an aside, the de- the definition of endure, according to the interwebs, yeah. is to suffer something painful or difficult patiently. Okay. <laughs> That's quite wide. So you're not defining so, it on a time, but you're defining it on a, I guess, a, an experience. Yeah, I suppose that's what they do. And that's kind of mine would be endurance sport is any activity that requires you to manage how you allocate your resources. Yes. So, so then that applies to pretty much everything. Even a 400 meter runner is to some extent having to apply i mean you can't those guys yeah. could run faster than they do right they still have to pace themselves but I there's guess. a degree of yeah. pacing so i suppose yeah. that's in the context of sport it boils down to pacing to me yeah but yeah. no one would talk about a 400 meter athlete as an endurance athlete so it no. doesn't work in that sense so is there a is there a point where you can say something is endurance or is it just a a, a, a melt a melting of of, of time no this i don't think there's a point where it becomes there's no line that says right now that we've done this many hours kilometers minutes days we are now officially doing endurance activity yeah. it doesn't work like that but and i suppose we can get into um what the elements are of doing the activity because there is i suppose a metabolic definition and you might arbitrarily say that endurance is where 
your energy requirements or, sh- or sources shifts from one source or it doesn't, sh- it doesn't yes. shift, it's not a switch, but it crosses over at some point to being predominantly X as opposed to Y. Which is kind of where my so, definition sits. Yeah, yeah, although yeah. that happens much, much um, sooner than in 90 minutes, right? So yeah. even a 1500 meter athlete is, in this case, we're talking aerobic, anaerobic, right? Yes. Are we on the same page? Yep. Yeah. No. So, <laughs> you know, they used to think these 800 meter, 1500 guys are just almost entirely without oxygen. But there's actually mm. a lot going on there. Mm. And I seem to recall the latest one I saw is that 1500 is about 50-50 oxidative versus anaerobic. Oh, okay. So that's very short. That's three and a half minutes for the very best in the world. I thought that would so, be tiny anaerobic. Yeah, and that's that's mm. kind of like the... But mm. so, so 90 minutes is almost entirely aerobic. Yeah. So yours is a very conservative, I suppose, mm. definition of endurance. But that's why mine is... When I say you have to allocate resources, I'm using almost like the de- dictionary definition of it. Yeah. Is you can't just go flat out. You know, yeah. your budget has to endure the month. So I mean, if you had if you had unlimited money, your budget wouldn't have to endure anything because you could just spend it. So the problem with endurance is that you have <laughs> you have a finite capacity of everything, and we'll get into what those things are. Mm. And endurance is how do I spend my resources? Yeah. Yeah, because there are people that do and define endurance by, like myself, anything more than ninety minutes, mm. and that that list of events goes. That list of endurance challenges, if it starts in ninety minutes, it can go anything up to, you know, somebody who might ride every day for, you know, fifteen days, like people who do the uh, the trans European cycle races and Newt Carp and those sort of events where they're doing fifteen hours a day for fifteen days. That for me seems like the ultimate endurance. Then you get Ironman. Then you get our mutual our mutual friend Ron Rutland, who last weekend left to cycle all the way to New Zealand. Yes, via obviously not over the ocean, via Europe, I guess, via Africa and Europe. Then all the way to France for the next Rugby World Cup for men. So he's cycling nonstop until twenty twenty three. Yeah, so So, that's also a lot of endurance. Okay, so then we have a wide spectrum. Yeah, exactly. So I I don't know how much mileage there is really in. trying to define endurance. I think most people know endurance when they feel it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, again, to come back to it, I'm not suggesting an 800-meter athlete is an endurance athlete, but there's a component of enduring mm. to run a good 800. Okay, so for our purposes, in terms of the themes that we are likely to talk about, can we define that we are talking about long-distance challenges? In other yeah, words, not, not, not events that are speed endurance, and we're not talking about track here. Yeah. We're not talking about 10Ks. We're talking about marathons, Ironman, long-distance cycling events, uh, multi-day endurance events, those type of things. Yes, and I think what distinguishes them, if we want a differential diagnosis here to say, okay, what is it? It's that they are of a duration where a certain unique set of challenges arises. Yes. It may not arise in shorter duration exercise. Okay, so that right. that's a good place to start. Yeah. When you talk about these challenges, can you give a number to those challenges? Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I can think off the top of my head. You've obviously got you know physical, mental, and mm. uh, fueling. But can we define mm. them probably better than that? So we can define them. We can probably break them up at the top level into physiological, mental, and emotional. 
And maybe some people would cringe at that distinction. Maybe we should bundle the mental and mo- emotional together. Yeah. Then within physiological, there are probably three or four. By the time we get to the end of this, we might look back and recognize that we've actually found five or six. Who knows? We'll see where we get to. Mm. But they would be fuel. In other words, can I sustain the energy requirement of doing this task? And would fluids sit in there? And fluids is overlapping but independent because, of course, most people would know you get most of your fuel through liquids. Mm. But you don't have to. You could eat and drink water. So, True. so I suppose one can distinguish between fueling challenges and fluid challenges, right. recognizing that they actually do overlap in the real world Makes a lot. Makes sense to me, yeah. Thermal, because any time we exercise for a long time and in the right or, in this case, wrong environmental conditions, there's a, there's a heat challenge. And we, in fact, spoke about that for over an hour the other day. Our most recent podcast, if you haven't heard it, is all about exercise in the heat. So we will mention some things. We won't go into depth today. Yeah. Uh, there's a neuromuscular challenge because particularly when you are running, I mean, a marathon, 42,000 landings, <laughs> you know, and 21,000 on each leg. That's yeah. a lot of impact to accumulate. Imagine you did 100 miles, how much that is. Uphills, downhills. Downhills cause more light. So there's a mechanical. So when you say neuromuscular, can you just define what you mean by neuromuscular? Because uh, I see that as the way the body responds to exercise and the, the mechanics that happen as a result of that. Yeah, yeah. To and it's it's a consequence of neural tendon and muscular function. Right. So we'll get into them as we yep. discuss them in okay. turn. Yeah, but yeah. there is research looking, for instance, at running economy, biomechanics, muscle damage. Uh, muscle contractility when you finish an ultra endurance task whether it's a marathon or an ultra what does your muscle look like and how does it function compared to before Mm -hmm. what is the accumulated load of having done that task due to you know obviously cycling even 16 hours is probably less damaging than running four because there's no impact right right but these 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 are still factors yeah so that's neuromuscular then then there would be a category of um mechanical which are things you don't often think about blisters yeah <laughs> that's not a challenge if you're running a 1500 yeah uh, it's a challenge if you're running 100 miles with wet socks yeah. at times uh for cyclists it's saddle sores and lower back pain accumulated over 17 days of the tour de france with four to go now your back's hurting and locked up so mm. mechanical challenges are actually quite limiting can be quite limiting then then there's fatigue, which sounds obvious and stupid, and it's a consequence of some of the things we've mentioned. You get fatigued because you run out of energy. Yeah. You get fatigued because you get too hot. But there's also other kinds of fatigue, central fatigue, muscular, peripheral fatigue, that you have to meet that challenge if you're going to finish. Mm-hmm. And, and really what we're talking about there is pacing. How do you spend your reserves? Mm. Too, too much too soon, you're bankrupt halfway through you're not finishing too little too soon you're not going hard enough and you therefore underperform so figuring that out is really really important and then i guess the final one is that mental emotional side yeah and my take on endurance sport is is somewhat cold-hearted and pragmatic it's that if you've got these six or seven challenges and you solve them you'll finish yeah if you fail to solve them you won't and we all know that, like we've all gone out and done long, long rides and not fueled enough, and then we blow, we, we hit the wall, so to speak, run out of sugar. That's because you fail to solve that particular challenge. Yeah. 
maybe you listen to us talking about exercise in the heat and you've gone out and you've over some of you replied on Twitter and you, you shared your, your stories. That's because that challenge on that day got the better of you. Yeah. You went out too fast, like Matt Beers said in his testimony to us about his race. During the heat podcast, yeah. That's a challenge that on that day he didn't he didn't meet. So mm. anyway, that's yeah. So set of challenges, you solve them, you win, or you finish, you don't, you fail, you lose. <laughs> I mean, you defined a few moments ago what the dictionary definition of yeah. endurance is. And it's always fascinating to think about during the modern age that we live in, we are choosing to do these endurance challenges. Um, whereas, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, people had to do them to mm. survive. And then somewhere in between you had the explorers of old who were taking on these challenges um, yeah, and, and yeah. also without the same amount of information and science th right. that they have. So it's always quite fascinating to talk a little bit about the, the sort of the, the, the old generation challenges, yeah, why yeah. they knew so little, yeah, and yeah. what do we know now about being able to overcome them? Well, how far back do you want to go? Because in actual fact, <laughs> endurance is the fundamental characteristic that gave homo sapiens an evolutionary advantage that's a good place to start so we might as well start at the very beginning yeah, <laughs> literally um so there's a guy in harvard called daniel lieberman very well-known scientist he's yes. won the ig nobel prize you know which are the you know the nobels there's mm -hmm. a separate category that are given to good but goofy research you know like so right. they'll do funny funny research but of a high quality and he's won that and he's also well known because he did a paper in Nature called Running and the Evolution of Homo. And basically the thesis was that among the primates, which is where we all we are, I mean, evolutionary-wise, you can trace us back there, our ability to run, and in particular long distances, gave us an advantage over other primates because it allowed us to hunt effectively. Hmm. Because other animals didn't have the ability to, and we use the word endure, which is to suffer patiently <laughs> in pursuit of food. Especially if you're hungry. Right. Yeah. So so the tactic was persistence hunting is what it was called. So are we the best in terms of endurance amongst all the animals on earth? No, among primates. I mean, if there, primates, was a, okay. if there was an inter-animal Olympics, we would be nowhere. There's a talk that you've done in the past where yeah. there's a video yeah. of a bushman yes. going and chasing down an antelope. And literally, I don't know how long it took him. But eventually, by the end of it, the antelope is just so exhausted, it stands there and they can kill it mm, as that, it's standing there. They'd hunt for hours. Yeah. They'd literally leave at like 8, 9 in the morning. No, it's not 4 in the morning when it's cold and, and still dark before <laughs> the sun comes up. We'd wait, right? That's the owl and you talking. Well, <laughs> yes, but that was also the thing that allowed us to survive. Because they, they, they learned that they weren't going to succeed in the dark. Mm. And besides, there were predators around. So, like, let's, let's yeah. <laughs> play the odds here. Let's... Not challenge, let's not, tigers. let's not challenge the predators because mm. we'd lose every race there as a sprinter. Mm. But but we figured out that if we hunted in the hottest part of the day, we had numerous advantages over other animals. And this is what Lieberman's theory was, is that we, we can run quite economically, other animals. Why? Well, for a number of reasons. We've got large gluteus maximus muscles that drive us. We run upright. We've got long tendons relative to muscles, whereas other primates have got long muscles, short tendons. Right. And tendons act like springs, like pogo sticks. And so as we run and we load those tendons, we actually don't become more and more uneconomical okay. because the tendons help keep our cost of running lower. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so we became quite efficient distance runners. And then over and above that, we didn't have hair as much. 
and we have sweat glands. Right. And that combination allowed us to lose significant heat. And so we had a thermal advantage and an economical efficiency advantage. Uh, and we had the ability to think about pacing. Other sure. animals don't necessarily do that. So the tactic was start hunting when it's already hot mm-hmm. and just keep going and going and going. And you'll lose the battle every single time <laughs> yeah. until you win the war. Yeah. So what's happening is the animal we we're hunting, the antelope, over 400 meters, way faster than humans. No worries, we'll just track it. And it'll sprint 300 meters, get away from us, but we'll tortoise against the hare, tortoise against the hare every mm. time. And eventually that animal, because it's hot and it wants to not be active in the hot part of the day, because it can't lose that heat. Mm. Eventually it just lies down with heat exhaustion mm. and we can make an easy kill. And all of a sudden we've got all this wonderful protein and fat, which nourishes the brain. And that's what drove our evolution. So, so anybody says, when anybody says, well, I'm not a runner or I'm not yeah. a long-distance person, actually, physiologically, the homo sapiens that we are, yeah, are com- is perfectly designed for endurance exercise as we could ever be. Yeah, pretty much. It was, and it was, in fact, one of the characteristics that allowed us to become what we are. Uh, ob- obviously, there are some homo sapiens are better runners than others. Yes. <laughs> some are, but, most are not as big as, as the older homo sapiens of the past. But the whole concept born to run, which mm. most people will know because it was a very, very well-read and successful book by Chris McDougall, I think yep, is the name. That's right. Yep. Uh, that's where you can read a little bit more about this concept. And, of course, it spawned barefoot running and a few other things that maybe went off in a funny direction at times. But the point is that endurance was the strategy that allowed us to hunt. Mm. Because had it been speed, we would not have succeeded. Mm. So endurance... And even strength. I mean, we couldn't jump out of a bush and tackle oh, there's a, no way. a woolly mammoth. No, We'd have I mean, to run it down. Exactly. I mean, mm. the, we, as I say, if there we, was we, an Animal Olympics, we would be nowhere. We'd be extinct if we were we relying we, on we our... We wouldn't the marathon, though, wouldn't we? No, because like you get these antelope, uh, I forget the name, but they, they cover hundreds of miles a day. Easily. They wouldn't even win the marathon. No, not against other animals, but against other primates, for sure. Yes, okay. I mean, you think about horses, and and they can gallop at 40k an hour for an hour, hour, two two hours. They'd be way ahead by the time you got to them. Sub two-hour marathon, piece of cake. So, I mean, mean, that's very nice background to the discussion, because, you know, you think about the history of man, we've always been attracted to endurance challenges haven't we it's not just the fact that we do ironman events and long distance running and cycling events now it's the fact that we always have in a way been attracted by the challenge of endurance yeah and it's why is that i mean you you and i are both keen cyclists and and we often sit and maybe fueled by one or two um, pints of beer we we come up with stupid endurance ideas yes. let's do this i don't know what I it is i suggest them and you do them <laughs> that's what happens i don't know what it is that makes us it's just it's it's like we like to test ourselves but mm. but maybe the 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 non-scientist in me likes to think there's something in us that just understands mm. that that's where we came from and so therefore that's what we pursue maybe that's mm. interesting you know, that's and i think about the scientific. explorers of old as well i mean the explorers were the ultimate endurance sort of well ultimate endurance explorers i guess in many ways weren't they because they were going into uncharted territory a lot of them yeah um back in the day and that was that was a scary place because they were going to places well, that nobody had been before well they didn't know what the finish line was yeah at least yeah. when we do how do you feel we, we don't we know, know how far you're going yeah. yeah we know what the finish line is they just yeah. have a horizon mm. which never seems to arrive 
So you can find lots of great examples about endurance feats from explorers. And I mean, okay, not necessarily the Columbus and the Magellans and the Cooks of the world, mm. but more recently, think about Everest. Uh, yeah. Okay, and there you knew how far or how high you were going. Think about the race to the South Pole, which is for sure one of the most fascinating and probably actually, that's probably biased in its retelling, but probably the pinnacle of human endurance was that successful expedition to the South Pole. Particularly because, and if you if you know this history better than I can, please don't correct me. Sounds like you know it better than I do. So, so in the early 1900s, there was a race to the South Pole, and Amundsen, who was Norwegian, was trying Old to get. Amundsen. That's right. He was trying to get to the North Pole, and then he got beaten. And he said, "Well, I don't need the second guy, <laughs> so I'm going to go south." Meanwhile, Scott was already heading south, and so it became seen as this race to the South Pole, and. There's actually a really fascinating paper in a scientific journal called, I'm going to get the title wrong, it's something along the lines of, Would Scott Have Succeeded with Today's Sports Science and Nutrition Knowledge? Yeah. Because when you read what they did differently, you know, Amundsen versus Scott, Scott's crew made some pretty fundamental mistakes. So when I spoke earlier about meeting a fueling challenge, okay, they don't have a thermal challenge in the way that a Ironman in Hawaii does, but they've got... A thermal challenge in the other direction yeah um yeah. which is a subject of a podcast we plan to do by the way cold is yeah. just as interesting as heat yeah but but how do you stay warm how do you stay nourished and fueled how do you allocate your energies to walk for that long in those conditions dragging your food and your supplies and your your home <laughs> basically your tents with you mm. and ultimately scott didn't meet the challenges as well as amundsen did they had inferior equipment they didn't have the same dog to person ratio they didn't use their dogs as wisely they tried to rely more on mechanical sleds and it didn't work in mm. the end and then also the, the biggest thing is they didn't fuel well sure. um so they've tried to reconstruct it in the 1990s there was a guy called ranolf fines who went Sir to ranolf fines that, that's yeah. right yes Unbelievable. You look him up. I mean, this, talk about endurance. This guy's done nutty things. Yeah. He's yeah. lost fingers for his troubles and his nose and frostbite. And anyway, they went, they walked the Arctic, Antarctic ice shelf 94 days, 7,000 calories a day average. I mean, that's, wow. that's unbelievable. Is that more than a Tour de France rider? That's Tour de France five to six average. So peak more at, than a Tour de France rider? Peak is nine. In the tour, the peak for Stroud and Fines was eleven and a half, eleven thousand calories on the one day, which is the hardest day when you go up to the top of the ice shelf. So you're going, it's it's unbelievable, eleven thousand calories. Because in the day. when you talk about, if you look at Tour de France athletes, they struggle to get the amount of calories into their bodies just to keep going over the three weeks of the event. So yeah. that must have been a real challenge for them. Right, and they've got a hotel and a chef waiting for them. Yeah. They've got a car giving them a water bottle every hour so that they can get their 60 grams an hour of carbohydrates. <laughs> These guys are dragging their own stuff with them. So yeah. that's why it's unbelievable. And so, so they worked out in hindsight based on analysis of what Scott and his diaries documented they'd taken that they were consuming about 4,500 calories a day, which is just not enough. Yeah. And so by the time those men died, they'd lost 40% of their body weight. And Scott was among the last, I think he was the last one to die, 12 miles from the finish. Wow. And if they'd, if they'd allocated slightly more fuel to the trip, he might. I mean, it's obviously there's a lot goes into it. They, they were unlucky also. They, one of the guys slipped on the ice, hit his head, got concussed. And I mean, how do you, how do you add that to, yeah, <laughs> to everything else? Nowhere. But the point is that they underfueled the expedition 
relative to the demand. You know, if it's if it's seven thousand, they took four and a half. So of course you're going to lose weight. What, and one of the big challenges you've got when you're doing that is that food weighs something, potentially mm. quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there comes a point at which the more food I carry, the harder it is to pull, which means I need more food, which makes it harder to pull, yeah. which means, and eventually you get into this like infinite loop that's unsolvable. <laughs> and, and nowadays they don't have, you know, they didn't have freeze dried fuel that they could take along with them the, and right. powders and gels and things that we have today. So we can now, we can compact by volume and by weight, yeah. which is what they couldn't do. And interestingly, uh, I forget exactly what the percentages are, but the thinking at that time was that you needed to take a lot of protein to prevent the muscle wasting. Mm -hmm. What we now know is that what you actually want is to take a lot of calories to prevent the muscle wasting. So so Scott overfueled with protein and underfueled with calories, whereas what they do now is you take a lot of fat because it's high in calories, it's very energy dense, and you don't therefore need quite as much protein because the root cause of the problem was the energy deficit, not the mm. protein deficit. Does that make so, yeah. so you get all these fascinating little nuances and those so guys all, didn't know that i mean they, they were just going there with nothing more than guts and glory and, and, so and the you, flag <laughs> if you're a sports scientist, i mean it's a good way to intro probably the, f the first element that you talk about in terms of the challenges of endurance and that is the challenge of fluid and fuel um if you were a sports scientist and you were planning this polar expedition now would it be a case of literally going into a lab, figuring out exactly how many calories they need per day, and then saying, unless you take this many calories a day and plan for this, you're not going to get there because the, the math doesn't work? Um, is, is it is it a, is it as could you do it that way? In theory, but of course, uh, you can't recreate minus forty two degrees Celsius no. and the wind, and what happens on the sixty third day of being exposed to those conditions yeah. in a lab. So you can you could probably come up with a range and that's what would likely happen is they would say all right we know now that the energy demands are between six and a half and seven thousand calories a day mm. so how do we meet that and then it's just a question of managing it while you're there mm. pacing yourself yeah judging and, and ingesting that amount of and making sure that you that you do it you know yeah, yeah. and other so, things so i mean imagine this... imagine the weight you're carrying just in clothing back yeah. in 1911 i think it was yeah. Compared to 2022. No lightweight materials back then. And yeah. one of the things Amundsen had was better equipment. They had these seal skin boots and waterproof clothing. And clothing makes a massive difference. You, you, can, you can survive temperatures of minus 18 with one or two layers if you're active. But if you're in, inactive, you need five layers. Mm. So the problem for them was when they stopped. Mm. Uh, so yeah. so you, can, you can plan for it, but then you still have to be agile in the, in the moment, mm. I think. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, because it's a great way to intro the different challenges. Fluid and fuel, as you've already said, there is a definition that slightly splits them apart. But we don't want to get too much into this because we're going to be focusing on this particular subject of fluid and fuel in a podcast later on this month. But maybe we can just talk a little bit about what fuels endurance and what mm. what fuels it both from an energy perspective and also a hydration perspective. Right, so... You hop in your car and you're driving to Johannesburg, which is a thousand mile, 1500k trip. Yeah. The, the thing you think about is I need petrol for this journey, right? I can't do it on a tank. Mm. And so therefore I'm anticipating I need to stop. And luckily, you know, you'll have an option to do that every two hours. So happy days. For a human being undertaking endurance, we have three petrol tanks 
actually three types in many different locations. We have a fat tank, we have a carbohydrates tank, sugar, mm -hmm. and we have a protein tank. Ideally, we don't want to touch the protein tank. That one is kind of there as last resort. That's why the <laughs> polar explorers were worried about it because at some point you start to consume protein as a source of fuel and then you do get what's called catabolism, breakdown of muscle tissues, and, and you don't want that, right? Right, yeah. That's only the con case when you have a major energy deficit. But what we, ca what we want is we want fat to provide energy and we want to have carbs on hand when needed. Right. So those are the two. We have carbs in two places, muscle and liver. Muscles store, depending on the person, their size, how well trained they are, 500 grams, which is good for, I don't know, two hours. Right. Liver stores much less, but it's really important because the liver puts its glucose, its carbs, into the blood, and that's what keeps the brain going. Right. So if we ran out of liver glucose, or carbs, glycogen actually, mm. We start or, or to, in simple terms, sugar, isn't it? Yes, yeah, is exactly. It, is, it, is it simple to say sugars? Yeah, it's mm. that's accurate. Yeah. Then we get that sensation that everyone who has tried endurance sport has probably encountered, where we get lightheaded, dizzy, weak, tunnel visioned, low blood sugar, right. hitting the wall is what it's also known as. That also happens when we run out of muscle glycogen. So eat, whether and there've been studies where they've kept the liver glycogen high but depleted the muscle. And vice versa, kept the muscle glycogen high and depleted the liver. A, a, a depletion in either one of those usually causes fatigue. Yeah. All right. Now, what we do is we pace ourselves to avoid that. We're not dumb. <laughs> we don't. Okay, we don't have a fuel gauge, but we have a brain. Right. And our brain is able to sense the energy availabilities and then paces us in order to avoid, in theory, that happening. But of course, at some point... If you don't ever refill the tank, it's going to run out. Yeah? Right. So therefore, we have to manage, and this is the key, is fuel is mostly dependent on intensity. So when you walk, when you cycle really slowly, or you run really slowly, the predominant source of fuel is fat. And that's coming from the adipose tissues, which we all have <laughs> too much of, yep. subjectively. Yes. <laughs> when we look at ourselves, we and say objectively. <laughs> some for some people. Uh, adipose tissue and in the muscle we also store fats as triglycerides they're called intra inside muscular triglycerides those are fat stores in the muscle right now fat is virtually unlimited we we can't exercise to the point of fat depletion there's so much of it that it's it's good to so go even a skinny person has enough fat to so much mm. I mean that's when, right. when people go on hunger strikes that's what keeps them alive mm. for so long you know whereas water and sugar you can deplete that quickly but fat we just we, we, we've got plenty <laughs> so alright so intensity is the difference between and, fat and sugar and intensity glucose. drives that so right. it's it's not correct to say there's a point at which we shift towards burning carbs versus fat or vice versa but when we exercise at low intensity, say like 25% of our max, walking pace, like slow, slow running or cycling, mm -hmm. the majority, 80% or more of our energy is coming from those fat stores. Isn't that what they call the lactate threshold though? Uh, In other words, the, the, the point where you go, you turn from fat into sugars because the intensity is at a well, level. Yes and no. I know what you're getting at, but not quite. So a couple of things is there's not a point where it, turns right. there, there might be an upturn 
in lactate concentration. So we can measure lactate in the blood as we increase harder, uh, as we increase our exercise intensity. So I start walking, slow jog, moderate jog, faster jog, very fast jog, sprint. And over, over time, as I speed up, my lactate level goes up. And at some point, it starts to go up really quite quickly. Right. That's not the point that corresponds to fuel use. Right. That's the point that corresponds to excessive carbohydrate oxidation. Okay. So you're already using the sugars, but then you, you're using them at just a faster and faster rate to the point that eventually you start to form lactate instead of metabolizing pyruvate through the pathway. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So, so it's not the lactate threshold. It's a, but what happens is as we get, so we, we start off cycling really easy, 50 watts, barely turning the pedals, yeah. just spinning over, 100 watts, 150, 200. As the intensity goes up, a greater proportion of our energy comes from carbs. And we need more energy overall too. So is it a, as that intensity goes up, is it, is it become a combination of fat versus sugars? Yes. But there's not one point where it suddenly goes from fat into sugars? No. So at some point it crosses over and at about 65 to 75%, depending on training status and diet and habituation and genetics and all sorts of complex things, it becomes 50-50. So at the start, right. it's almost 100-0. Mm-hmm. And then over time, that fat drops to 90, the carbs comes to 10, 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40. And then at around 70, call it 65, 70%, it's 50, 50. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, carbs becomes the predominant source of fuel because carbs are much more readily available to the muscle and we need the energy quickly when we are exercising at a high intensity. So anytime mm-hmm. you're doing high intensity work, you need carbohydrates. If your intensity is low, you can get away predominantly with fat because that's what's being burned in that moment. Well, that was my question. So I guess, and if you look at all the forums and the discussions on any sort of endurance channel online, there's always a discussion around using fat predominantly as a fuel. In other words, can you train only Mm. using fat? And more importantly, can you race only using fat? Um, because we talked about the sliding scale of fat versus sugars. And as you say, we don't want to go too much into detail here, but mm. maybe just to find when we talk about that debate, is it then possible to say when I'm going to go and train, I'm always going to use fat. And then when I'm going to race, I'm going to train my body to race only using fat. Yes. So, so unlike cars, we actually can train our fuel tanks. Right. And we can train our body to preferentially use one tank over the other. So with fitness, we increase the proportion or reliance on fat. Right. With a high-fat diet, we increase the proportion or reliance on fat. So there are strategies that would ask athletes to eat a low-carb diet while training in order to drive their machinery that burns fat. So, so the, the keto and the benches stand is going wild at the moment. Right, and <laughs> and so that's that's true. So we have we have uh, I don't want to call it, call it flexibility, agility. Uh, plasticity, whatever you want to call it, mm. we have that metabolically. So we can, with training, so remember what training does, we've covered this in the past, you go back and look in our archives, training drives, aerobic training in particular, endurance training drives the production of these mitochondria, which are these little factories in our cells that are responsible for burning fuel in an oxidative way, which is to say with oxygen. Mm. They contain all the enzymes. So as we get fitter through training, we have more capacity to burn fat. Mm-hmm. So therefore we do. So you, Mike Finch, here today on what's at the 28th of January, might measure yourself in a lab and, and at a certain power output or a certain running speed, we can measure and say, right, 
43% of your energy was coming from carbs, 57 fat. Go away and train for three months. We're going to get you back in at the same speed. Oh, and look now, it's 65% fat, 35%. Oh, okay. So, and that's purely because of the production of mitochondria. Uh, primarily, yes. Primarily. That's the main oh. thing is we just improve our capacity to oxidize fat. We also, we get better at mobilizing the fat. So in other words, getting it out of the adipose tissue into the muscles. We get more economical, and so therefore we can we can burn less overall, but more and more from fat. And there's a circulatory component to it as well. So and hormonal, you know, the thing, the thing that drives the increase in carb as we get faster and faster, intensity goes up, is sympathetic nervous system. You know, the old fight or flight. Mm. Your your body is flooding with more and more adrenaline, and that's what triggers carb burning, mm. breakdown of glycogen in the liver, breakdown of carbs in the muscle. With fitness, that signal is smaller and arrives later. So right. therefore, you don't get the same adrenaline sympathetic response. So, then, so there's yeah. lots of stuff going on here, right? Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty I, know, cool. I mean, that's why we touched on it during that podcast we did around the perfect mm. way to train is that training easy is critical to training your body to be able to use fat more efficiently. Yeah, you don't actually have to challenge your body in training as if it's a race because mm. one of the key benefits that's going to help your race performance mm. is achieved by training at low intensities. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you can actually get benefit without risk. Mm. So that's a really important principle. Yeah. But but yes, and, and the same thing happens with low-carb, high-fat diets is that your body sees what's available and it gets better at using that. So over time, a habitual high-fat eater is a better fat burner than a low-fat eater. The, the problem for athletes now, and this is where the ketone crowd might need to take a seat, <laughs> is that there is evidence that shows that we become less efficient mm -hmm. when we are in the high-fat feeding phase. And our ability to do high-quality training is compromised. There's no question that you, you can't go out and do intervals. You can't go out and do um, high-intensity sprint work. You can't even go out and race like a 10K or something if you're a marathon runner weekly time trial, yeah. those are compromised. Why? Because they're high intensity and they need carbs. They need sugar. Yeah. They, need, they need the sugar. Yeah, um, it's fast and it's available. If you're, if you're a team sport athlete, a footballer, you, you, you would not be able to sustain the intensity of sprint efforts for 90 minutes mm. on a low-carb diet compared to a high-carb diet. Yeah. So, so, so yes, you're going to gain something metabolically, but you you're trading it off against the fact that now I'm going to lose certain training adaptations by virtue of the fact that I'm actually sacrificing my training quality. So that's where it gets quite nuanced. Um, and the lab studies don't always reflect the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this, this, sorry, just one last point is within carbs, there are so many things that we might explore. Which carbs do you need? How much of yeah. them? How, timing and so on. But as you said in your intro, we are doing a full episode on fueling endurance exercise. So maybe we can... We can park Pockets, some yeah. of the detail yeah. for that. And just for now, yeah, let's leave it at a high level there for now. Yeah, so keep an eye on that. Later on in February, in a podcast a couple from now, you'll be able to get more detail on around fuel and fluid. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, 
So let's, uh, we talked about fuel, so let's talk a little bit about fluids and hydration. Yeah, so not in massive detail, Yeah. but the challenge for ultra-endurance exercise is to drink the right amount and avoid the biggest danger, which is drinking too much, which might surprise some people, but <laughs> you're, you're far more at risk of overhydrating than under when you do super long endurance exercise. In part because, as we've just discussed, much of the fuel that you have to take in to prevent carbohydrate depletion comes in the form of fluids. So there's a almost a minimum requirement for fluid. Mm. But then over and above that, if we drink water, we can quite quickly overconsume relative to sweat. Mm. So when you're doing an ultra-endurance bout of exercise, 100 miler, I mean, you're probably going what, 12, 15 minutes a mile, a lot of people, which is, what's that, 8 to 10, 10 minutes a K. Yeah. Think of these ultra trail type races. Even no, the best no. runners aren't going that fast sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, your sweat rates are quite low. It's not like two liters an hour in a super hot, high intensity 10K. So therefore, if, you don't, if you're not careful and you consume more than a liter an hour, you're actually diluting over the course of many hours your plasma. Mm-hmm. And that has some, your blood plasma. That yeah. All right. And that has some pretty severe consequences. The main outcome of which is this thing called hypo low natremia, which is sodium. So your sodium levels drop, and the consequence of that is and the sodium f- levels in the stomach, in the blood, in the blood, in the okay, blood. Right. Yeah. And the consequences of that is that your brain swells up because fluid starts moving in the opposite direction to what it should, and so you get cerebral edema. Right. And you get so it's going from your gut into the from the blood, from the blood. Okay. Mm. Right. Mm. Okay. So you do, remember you're diluting the sodium content of the blood. Yes. And so now all of a sudden that dilute fluid is going into the tissues, into the cells, everywhere, including in the lungs. So you get fluid in the lungs, you get fluid in the brain, and this is a cause of death in in marathons. So fluid is moving to where careful. there is more salt relative to where it's from. Right. Correct. And through osmosis, it's kind of moving in there. Yep. So it's a reverse osmosis kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's osmosis, yeah. but in the wrong direction. Right. Okay. <laughs> Compared to where we want it to so go. So you actually start swelling up. Yeah, pretty much. You get uh, edema. That's what right. it is. So cerebral edema. And the problem is the brain can't swell. Mm-hmm. And so many people, and I'm not exaggerating, there have been a number of deaths as a consequence of this condition. So the, the challenge with endurance exercise is to... F- is to fuel, as we spoke about before, but also to hydrate at the correct amount so that you don't incur the most damage. And, and you, you'd rather err on the side of under-drinking than over, which is really? interesting. I was yeah, going to say, I mean, maybe we should have a caveat to this and just make sure that nobody, people don't stop drinking. But uh, Just when, when you're what, thirsty, I mean, you drink. That's, so, a, that's the secret. When you're I know thirsty, Professor you... Tim Noakes always talks about ad libitum, doesn't he? Exactly. Um, he wrote so, a book called Waterlogged, which talks mm, a little bit about this specifically. And he talks right. about drink as you feel. Mm-hmm. And know. so our body has an exquisite thirst mechanism. The moment the moment that salt content, the high, the osmolality of our blood, which mm. is driven primarily by sodium, oh, there's this potassium, and, but mainly sodium, the moment that goes up, even a slight amount, we get thirsty. Right. Plus, our body kicks in all sorts of fancy hormones that act in the kidneys to try and either release more water or, in this case, absorb, reabsorb the water. So if our sodium levels go up, our body conserves water because it wants to redilute the blood and get it back to normal. Mm-hmm. If our sodium levels go down, we try and get rid of water and conserve salt. So there's this hormonal system that's happening and at the same time a thirst mechanism. And so your body's mostly got it under control. You don't need to 
drink to a plan. Okay. I think the biggest danger is when you drink to a plan. By all means, you have to have a fueling plan, but not a hydration plan that demands that you drink a liter and a half or whatever it is an hour, which is, I mean, they used to advise I mean, runners. we're guilty of that, as for me, as editors mm-hmm. of Runners World and Bicycling. We often advise people on hydration strategies yes, in exactly. terms of how much you should drink per hour. So right. you're saying we shouldn't and be doing that. You might be theory. right sometimes because yeah. your person is going to go out and exercise on a warmish day and run quite hard or cycle quite fast. Mm. But if it's not, and if a five-hour marathon runner reads the same advice that a 330 does, Mm. And they've got completely different sweat requirements. The one is a 53-kilogram woman and the other one's a 91-kilogram man. Mm. That it's woman's in danger. Yeah, that woman's in danger. Sure. And that happens. That has yeah. happened. So mm. advertising in race packages at marathons has told people, drink 40 ounces an hour. Religiously, they do it and they die. <laughs> wow. So, okay. so that's a challenge to overcome. But at the same time, when you start getting into 12, 18, 24 hours, of exercise like you do in these 100 mile mountain races then your thirst response is i'm not going to say it's unreliable because it still is but it's confounded by nausea and Mm -hmm. movement and the fact that you've done nothing but see six sweet drinks for the last 19 hours and you don't want to drink in that situation you have to maybe have a bit of discipline and and have an approach to dealing with fluid Mm -hmm. requirements but before that happens you don't need to worry about it your body's got you and as a story, I mean, I know that we, we, we often go for rides together and uh, I guess you kind of live this in your own riding because often we uh, make the comment that you never very really take a water bottle with you. I mean, is that the reason why you don't <laughs> take a water bottle with you or is it to save weight on the climbs? No, no that's it. When you're carrying as much weight as I am, Mike, that, that water bottle is trivial. That's it's a drop in the ocean. Yeah, half a kilo. <laughs> yeah, I could, if I was worried about weight, I'd do a lot more than not take a water bottle. <laughs> but why don't you take a water bottle? I mean, it is well, something in- that you don't you don't do well if we if we ride and it's like last weekend i'm, I'm taking water yeah if because, it's hot, yeah. yeah because it's hot but also because i know our route and i know that after one hour we're going to stop for a coffee <laughs> <laughs> so you don't need to hydrate and after the, the and after the second hour we're going to stop for our regular coke stop yeah, and then true. i just make it home on the last 45 minutes yeah. and so i don't i don't get thirsty yeah and i've learned but I, i've also know like okay today is a warmer day and i know that we're going to go mm. All the way around the peninsula, so I'm going to have two hours before the first stop. Today I'm taking water because yeah. I know I'll get thirsty. So, yeah, yeah I, I've, yeah. I've, and that's the that's the take home message. Not follow me, but yeah. is is learn what you do, what you need. Yeah. So be observant about your own needs and behaviors, and then over time you develop your own strategy and you just manage mm. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we are going to talk more about uh, fluid in a later podcast this month, so uh, we will get into some more detail on that. But let's just move on to some of the other aspects that you talked about in terms of the challenges of endurance. And mm. we talk, we've touched a little bit on the thermal side of it. Mm. Maybe we can just expand a little bit on we've, – we've talked about the heat side in a previous podcast, so yeah. we don't want to talk too much about that. We talked about the challenges of endurance sports in the cold. But, you know, I guess the thermal side is just about body management, isn't it, around either heat or – yeah, and you know, I re-listened to the podcast from last week, which was exercise in the heat, and mm. for the most part covered it. The one thing I didn't emphasize is that the main thing that drives your core temperature is your intensity of exercise. Mm. It's the same thing, actually, that drives your reliance on carbs and fat. How fast you go is the main thing. Mm. Obviously, the environment matters because it influences the other side of the equation, which is heat loss. So on a hot, humid day, the same intensity is going to be damaging compared to on a cooler less humid day obviously yeah. 
Logically. But but the thing that's in your control is not the weather, it's the pace. <laughs> yeah. So so in terms of solving the endurance problem of heat, the question is how slowly do I need to go? Um, and of course there's a trade-off because if you're going to be exposed to the sun and the heat for 10 hours, at some point maybe you don't want to be out there for 12. Maybe yeah, you want to, there is an exposure issue. There's an exposure absolutely. issue, especially when it's a sunny day. You're just mm. going to get sun-induced problems, sunstroke. Yeah. But but managing the intensity, so it's a question of pacing. Yeah. And how slowly can I go? And there's some other interesting nuances. You know, I spoke about the endurance and the evolution of Homo sapiens. Mm. The the other thing that gave us a major advantage over animals was our size. We are smaller, and smaller people produce less heat, mm. and they have a larger surface area to weight ratio, so they lose disproportionately more heat also. So you've got it's the same as like. I don't know if they have it now because everyone's got aircon. But remember when we were at school, you had those radiators, those water yes. boiler radiators, <laughs> and they got those fins. In fact, you see that because heaters also they got those fins. Yeah. That's because they're trying to maximize the surface area surface, for yeah, yeah. for heat exchange. What humans have is we're upright, and we've got what's called distal elongation, which is to say our extremities are lengthened. Mm. So we are radiators <laughs> yeah. with with lots of fins. We've got arms and legs mm. and a head. Mm. And we lose heat quite effectively like that. Mm. And also because we're upright, we, we, yeah, anyway, that's the whole running, running side of it. Right. But yeah. the point is that small size, effective heat loss makes us good at endurance. Mm. But if I'm doing ultra trail Cape Town and it's in October and it's 25, 30 degrees, I'm on the mountain for 14 hours, I've got a thermal challenge that I have to manage. Yeah. And that's primarily managed by exercise intensity. Plus what we spoke about in our podcast, you have to adapt before and you have to be fit and then you can try and keep yourself cool for the perceptual benefits of doing that. So if we're good at handling hot conditions well, does that make us bad at handling cold conditions then? No, I don't think so. Not Certainly not physiologically. Definitely by preference. Mm. You get people who just say, it's cold, this is my weather. And you get people who say, it's cold, I can't go. Mm. Uh, and vice versa for the heat. Mm-hmm. But it is, I don't think there's a physiological difference. About well, we're not it. necessarily it's adapted an interesting... to the cold, but we can always become adapted by wearing clothing that keeps us warm. Yes, we can change our behavior and our equipment far more easily to get warm than to mm. stay cool. Yeah. Uh, but it's an interesting question. I've never really considered whether a heat-sensitive person is better in the cold or whether mm. a cold-sensitive person is worse in the heat. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah. I'll look it up for when we do exercise in the when cold. We do the questions. We'll yeah, maybe look into that'll be your bit. question. And then uh, you touched a little bit on in the intro to the neuromuscular. Now I think this is the most fascinating part of mm. the endurance discussion because for me, there is you know what happens to the muscle. The muscle needs fuel. It needs to be able to elongate and shorten and do all its work to be able to make you go forward. Maybe you can describe what the endurance challenge is there because some of the mechanics that are quite, I don't know how that works. In mm. other words, when, you, when you're running a marathon at the end of an Ironman, for instance, you certainly can't run as well as you'd run a marathon if you had not done a 180k bike ride before. Mm. If you're running an ultra-distance event, you certainly can't run yeah. as well as you do at the end that you do at the start. Um, so what happens to the body in that neuromuscular space when you do endurance events? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a massive question, and mu- <laughs> much of the answer to it's probably not known. Mm. But but effectively, what you're talking about is fatigue, mm. and again, as part of that fatigue is the regulation of performance by the brain, subconsciously and consciously, and 
it's direct fatigue in the sense that there's stuff in the muscle that we know is changing. And you, you know it's changing because if you went out and cycled 180 k's by itself hard, you'd wake up the next morning with tired legs. Yeah. So what are you feeling? <laughs> what are you feeling? Yeah. I, I don't know. But you're feeling some mechanical... You're feeling that fatigue. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. But you're feeling that fatigue is the mechanical consequence of having used the muscle so often and so intensively the day before. It must be. It can only be described as that. Right? It's funny. If you go to sleep at night after a, a quite an intensive endurance session, it feels like your heart is in your legs. Yes. In other words, you can right. feel your legs. They so, can almost feel your heartbeat in your legs, which is, right. as you say, it's difficult so, to describe what that is from a biological perspective. Yes, and we're not we're not totally clueless. We just aren't fully knowledgeable. Mm. Uh, any Any sustained high-intensity muscle contraction is causing damage to the muscle. Running much more than cycling, but still, it's not zero for cycling. So in other words, the muscle fibers are breaking down because of the effort of the exertion. Yeah, they're stretching and contracting against load. And so over time, there's, there's, there's damage happening there. Now, that damage is not catastrophic damage to be worried about. It's normal. And in fact, your body's response to that damage is going to be adaptation, which makes you stronger and fitter and more resilient in the future. That's why your first run after a long break, or if you go play tennis or squash, is going to hurt you for two days afterwards. You'll be stiff. Mm. That stiffness is literally the consequence of the molecular process that is healing and repairing the muscle. Inflammation. Right. Yeah. So fluid accumulation. You know, if you if you do a thousand bicep curls, forget a thousand, a hundred bicep curls, mm. your bicep will swell up. It'll be bigger. <laughs> you can literally measure the circumference. That's not that's not as you've done the exercise, but also it will get bigger Repairing well, itself down the line. Well, so, well, yeah. I'm not talking about the. Tr I'm not talking about the muscle bulking response that right. you're looking for. I'm talking about the day after. It's right. bigger because of fluid in that tissue space. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. So, in fact, one of the markers that scientists use to measure muscle damage is the change in circumference of a muscle. Okay. And and you'll see so it. If you want to get ripped for the beach tomorrow, go and do a whole bunch of exercises <laughs> to today. get that. That's the pump. That's the pump. And you the see pump, that. Yeah. You go to the True. club. You go to the weight a, 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 a weightlifting room or a, a fitness room. How can I forgotten this word? The gym. The gym. <laughs> Sorry. You go to the gym on a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon, you'll see all the young guys are in there like lifting so they can get a pump on because they're going out that night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this happens. This is why we're endurance athletes. But the point I'm trying to make is that there is damage. And the repair of that damage is what you feel even to the extent of waking up the next day or for a couple of days. My legs are tired. Mm. That's because there's still residual consequences of that exercise and it's mm. mediated by inflammatory markers and cytokines which attract cells to the site there's fluid that then comes in there because the the, the membranes become leakier mm. and yes over time that repairs itself and we get better and stronger but it's still there mm. now for running it's most noticeable i mean you've been involved in running long enough to have seen hundreds of people who can't walk after a marathon but more uh, importantly, it's about what happens at the end of an event. Is if you if you're shuffling along, doing a four to four and a half hour marathon, which is kind of my speed for a marathon, maybe closer to five hours now. But your 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 stride shortens. It's yeah. as if your muscles aren't able to contract mm. and el and and elongate at the same level that they were before. And so there's muscle fatigue that's yeah. not related to energy. No, no, exactly. It's muscle. It's muscle fatigue. It's Let's, let's let's call it this. Let's call it muscle underperformance. Yes. Okay. And define it's fatigue to do as that. Its job. Yes. It's not doing what it what it's being told to. And in okay, so in part that's happening because your brain's not telling it the same thing it told it at the start. 
Because your brain set. Remember, we spoke. We've spoken a few times about the whole concept of regulation by the brain. By the time you get to the finish line or near the finish, second half even of an endurance event, that signal from your brain is not the same as the signal at the start, unless you're a well-trained athlete pacing yourself exactly right. Wow. But but by the time you're talking about the shufflers who come in near the back and they've slowed down from six minutes a K to nine minutes a K, eight yep. minutes a K, they've, they've, okay, they'll be blunt, they've messed it up a bit. And their brain has decreased the signal. So there's a study that was done. And at the, why has the brain decreased the signal? What, why would it do that? It's getting feedback from a number of different systems in the body. Some of them might be heat and energy. So mm. it could well be related to those. But one of them is also the mechanical load. And, and you know, when you start getting tired, every time you land, is it's jarring. And it's actually, I wouldn't describe it as painful, but it's a signal that you are aware of as a runner. Yeah. It's ex- and same with cycling. By the... By the fourth hour of riding really, really hard, pushing the pedal hard hurts. Mm. So there's an afferent coming from the muscle to the brain. That's what afferent means. It's an afferent signal that the brain is interpreting and saying, actually, you know what? This is not good. We need to actually recruit protect less a bit, and protect yeah. ourselves because right. there's a mechanoreceptor in the tendon, in the muscle, and it's been overloaded to the extent that the brain then starts to reduce the pace to not get as much of that signal. Mm-hmm. And there are peripheral changes in the muscle. Mm. So at the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, which is this 100-mile, like 9,100 meters or something. It's crazy. I, yeah. I know it's over crazy. nine. It's over yeah. Everest in a day. Uh, they, they've done studies where they've looked at the guys who finish. Average finish time is like 37 hours. It's mad. Yeah, it's nuts. And they, they assess their muscle before and after. And they find two things. Number one is neural activation is down. And there was the signal from the brain to the muscle is down immediately post-race. Right. That recovers within... But that's obviously... Not only post-race, but it's probably happened during race as well. Yes, exactly. So yeah. you can only measure it once they cross the finish line right. and you yeah, drag yeah. them off to your equipment. Yeah, we can assume that. You yeah. can assume that that's been in play for half, continuously, a spectrum. I don't know. Mm. That neural activation decrease is there at least for two days. Then it returns to normal. So it's a short-lived response. But there's also evidence of muscle impairment. So... If you ask these athletes to apply maximum force, it's down by 30% at the knee. It's down by 37, I think, percent was the number at the ankle. So the muscles are just less able to produce force. Part of that is the signal from the brain, but a big part of that is also that the muscle is less contractile than it was before. And that's just muscle damage. So that's what's happening when you see those runners shuffling towards the finish line of an ultra is that they have incurred so much accumulated mechanical load Right. That it's damaged the muscle, the brain is then protecting a damaged muscle. So on both fronts, protection or the signal plus the muscle, they're just not working the way they were in the first 10 case. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's um, the consequence of yeah. endurance. And that, that takes a while. I mean, <laughs> the studies the studies on the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, it's, that's, that's weeks later you can still find evidence of that muscle damage. Yeah, so that, I mean that yeah, that's that's quite a good explanation as to why people feel the way they do after long endurance events because there really is something that you and I guess through training that gets better. But at the end of the day, if you're pushing yourself, if you're doing an Ironman, you're never going to do an Ironman in training. Therefore, the event itself is overreach. Yes. So therefore, yeah. you're going to be right. And then and then out of this comes a prediction <laughs> yeah. where your running economy, which is how economically you use oxygen, your cost of oxygen mm. use, gets worse. Yeah, And that's in part because your muscle fibers are fatigued, so you have to recruit different fibers to do the same job, and maybe you recruit less efficient ones. 
your your tendons get less elastic, especially your Achilles tendon. Fatigued tendon is not as good a spring as fresh tendon, unfatigued yeah. tendon. And then your stride changes. Your stride gets shorter. You spend more time on the ground. You have to apply more muscle force because the tendon does less of a job, less mm. less of a con- makes less of a contribution. So, all these different things are happening as a consequence of this. And I guess you also start using strain. different muscles because one muscle starts fatiguing. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and there's also there's also by the way there's also evidence of ventilatory fatigue. And those are the muscles that control breathing. Yeah. They get tired too. Your lungs get tired, yeah. So like there's one case study of a guy who did a, a challenge in the UK, 100 peaks in 25 days. It turns out that to do this, you have to do about five hours of exercise a day for 25 days. They measure this guy at the end. He finishes it. Well done. <laughs> Good athlete, obviously. Mm. And sure enough, every measure of lung function is worse. His lung, his tidal volume, his forced expiratory volume, his, the pressures that he's able to produce at the mouth are lowered. And so there is a direct effect of endurance exercise on the ventilatory muscles, which might also cause that economy problem. So yeah. lots is going, not wrong, yeah. lots of fatigue is being incurred because we're, we're, we're stretching our physiology to yeah. points that it hasn't been at. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, so that's, in, I mean, that is interesting. You t- let's touch a little bit on the mechanical side that you talked about. You talked about things like stuff that we don't necessarily consider, like, yeah. you know, saddle sores on, on a cycle ride there. Um, blisters on your feet when you're running, all those sort of things. Mm, I mean, they sun, are issues. Sunburn. <laughs> sunburn, yeah. These are, these are things, one. yeah. Sometimes it's an irritating. I always find I've done a couple of Ironman events and that something can be as irritating as just a creak in the pedal of your bike <laughs> that just drives you nuts after, yeah. you know, 60 Ks of a bike ride. I mean, you, you know, to hear it for the maybe that's the emotional time. side of it more than it is the mechanical. But mm. um, it, it is fascinating to think about all those different factors that, some of them we can control, and we have to control them. Mm. Um, but they can be as they could end the event for us if we don't control them. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure cyclists have lost races because of saddle sores. Unbelievably painful. Oh yeah, Chaf- chafing for long distance runners oh. and even cyclists if the conditions are wrong. It's just, I mean, you think you can endure yeah. pain, and then that happens. No. I mean, there are stories here in in South Africa. We have the Absa Cape Epic every single year, which for those of you who don't know, that event is eight days of quite serious mountain biking every day. And they have this little clinic within the medical area called the Bum Clinic. And uh, literally every day from day three onwards, there are people coming into that Bum Clinic with severe enough saddle sores where people are being stitched up. Um, I mean, I just can't imagine riding on a stitched up, you know, area where you were going to sit the next day but there is stories about that happening Um, and people who don't make the end of the epic purely because of that that issue yeah exactly and the thing about this stuff is that you probably won't find many published papers so when you ask me about fuel and fluid and about uh, neuromuscular and thermal i can cite research that is this stuff this is the kind of stuff where if you want to figure it out and solve the challenge you find someone who's done it 15 times and who looks yeah. like he's been around since the race was was created yeah. and you say listen give me some tips and then you try them for yourself in training there's a great tip i remember many years ago running um doing a lot of running at the time in my late 20s and um if you had a bit of chafe between your thighs when you were running one of uh, guys that we used to run with used to stop at the the local uh, filling station and used to take the old oil from an oil <laughs> can and put it between his legs, and it actually worked quite well. So there's a nice yeah. little tip for anybody who might be suffering from uh, some chafe out on the road. So there you go. Take enough money to buy a top up before. You don't even need to top it all. You just take the old oil can that they've used in a previous car, oh, and you just, just pour uh, out a bit and put it between those you. 
as bits and the yeah. way you go. So, yeah. yeah. So these are these are practical yeah. things practical like things, that you yeah. think about only after they've happened to you for the first time. Yeah. Um, but again, if we come back to the principle of an endurance event is going to throw at you six or seven challenges. Can you solve mm. them? And this is one of them, you know. Mm. Another one, and it's actually kind of related to fuel and fluid, is gastrointestinal issues. The, oh, you know, yeah. the problem is if you run or cycle for 10 hours, 15 hours, whatever it is, the demand for fuel and fluid plus the jarring motion, especially running, and the fact that there's no blood flow to the gut. Yeah. Uh, there's research that shows, for instance, that an ultra-endurance athlete, I think it's like 70%, will report gastrointestinal problems, whereas only so you say 30% that, I mean, of a gastrointestinal, uh, of, of marathon runner. So the longer you go, the more likely that is to happen. So that's that's a challenge you learn through practice to overcome. Well, I mean, that, I just wanted to stop you there for a minute because that is an interesting point you make about that, and I need to ask you about that. When, when you are exercising, does your body then not digest what it would normally digest if it wasn't exercising. Therefore, there's always this debate around whole foods yeah, when you're doing yeah. endurance exercises. Yeah. I mean, that, that is an interesting comment. Yes. Yeah, so so the, the, the problem is that your blood flow is limited and it's really needed at the muscle and the skin. Yeah. Um, it's not being used in the stomach. And so we, we divert the blood away from where it's less required. And the consequence is actually that the main challenge, you know, and that's why physiologists will say if it's not – if it's in the stomach and the intestine, it's still outside the body. <laughs> it's not in the body until it's left the intestinal space. Right. And that's, that's, for instance, the main challenge with getting carbohydrates in is actually getting them from this, the gut into the bloodstream. Mm. And a lot of the gastrointestinal problems are caused by overconsumption of excessively sweetened or sugary. In other words, if the concentration of glucose is too high, mm. then it causes the gastrointestinal problems. Because in the middle of an exercise bout, we just are not in the state to get it into the blood mm. and to absorb it and then to digest it. And that's start, why that's sick. why yeah. protein meals, fatty meals, that comes straight up. I mean, you have a fatty mm. meal and then you try and run, you'll, you'll be eating it for mm. hours <laughs> in a not good way. <laughs> same thing with protein. Dairy is the same, you know? Yeah. So, so you have to – and that's, again, it's – there are principles you can obey, but actually you just are best off getting out and learning through your own experience and observation – of yourself, what works for you. Yeah. A mm. couple more that we want to get through, and we are running out of time a bit now, but fatigue and pacing, I mean, we can... Yeah. That's that's obviously fundamental when it comes to endurance, isn't it? Yes, and so the, the challenge there is how do I maximize performance without butting up against these physiological limits? And I think we've covered what they are. It's, yeah. It's can I continually... Sorry, can I continue to provide the energy required to sustain this pace? Whether this pace means... Five minutes a K for 100 miles and I'm going to win the race, or whether it means eight minutes a K to finish mid-pack, whatever. Four hours at 300 watts average, I don't know what you're doing, Paris-Roubaix, that's what you need. Now, there's an energy demand that is set by the intensity. Can I meet it? Mm. And if you can't, then the pace is too high. So then you've got to mm. slow the pace down. <laughs> yeah. And that's the problem. So same thing for heat. What's yeah, the You fast- often say you can't beat physiology. I, I, yeah, you, yeah, you can't. And so you Eventually have to will catch up you have you. to adjust your behavior in response to that then you know because mm-hmm. what's the merit of doing 40k's at your desired pace and collapsing with inside of the stadium <laughs> that's a wasted day so the pacing is all about understanding where are the limits thermal limits energy limits and mechanical limits i think are the ones that we've covered here in this podcast today yeah and then saying what's the fastest i can go 
without exceeding that limit. Yeah. And that's that's where training comes in because you learn training achieves two things. One is it changes that limit for you. Well, no, it doesn't. The limit's always 40 degrees. It's always running out, but it changes how quickly you get to that limit mm. by making you adapted. Mm. But it also teaches you where you are in relation to that limit. Yeah. And then you can become better at managing your physiology. That's what training is. So one of the final things, and I reckon I could do an entire two-hour podcast on this final subject, and that's the mental-emotional side of endurance training. And I mean, maybe we can chat to, um, talk to, uh, you know, some experts in this month around this sort of space. But there are sports psychologists out yeah. there who you can talk to, and they certainly um, do the job around endurance. But it's so close to my heart because it's the one thing that I battle with. It's the part of the endurance challenge that I think that I struggle with because mentally. Often I go into an event not knowing what the mental strategy should be. Some people say you should envisage you should envisage looking at the finishing line, imagining yourself crossing the finishing line. I don't think it's possible to do no. that if you're doing an endurance event like an Ironman. You've literally got to think about the next 20 minutes, the next kilometer, whatever that is. Right. And eventually when you are close enough to your finish line, you can start thinking about it. But it's always a conundrum. And... Um, I mean, yeah, just your comments on that. I mean, I, I, it is a fascinating thing, and it is something that we, we must definitely do a podcast mm. purely on the mental and emotional side, maybe with a support psychologist about what the challenges are here. Yeah, so uh, disclosure is I'm not that person. Obviously, you know that, I know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so what I say on observations this is, on it. So I, I'm like you. I, I couldn't – I would have to slice the race up into the smallest possible pieces to do it. Um. Because if I if I think about the finish line, it's too big. Yeah, you know, you eat the meal one bite at a time. Not so you, you would know. agree that's the right strategy. Yeah, it's the whole yeah. eat the elephant thing. That yeah. said, if you if you do something very long, like these these backyard ultras, we spoke to Amelia Boone. You know, these races are going to go for twenty four hours, if not more, forty odd hours. Um, I don't know that you can concentrate on the task in small doses for quite that long. So you probably have to distract yourself at some point. Somehow, it'd be interesting to ask. Yeah. And we're, we're hoping to line up an, an athlete who will be able to tell us what they do, who's yeah. done this stuff at very high level. Because I think if you're racing it, of course, you, you're focused. Yeah. You're in a race. You've got other stimuli and considerations compared to the guy who's trying to finish it just before cutoff. Yeah. Um, there is some research that has shown, for instance, that affect, which is your emotional state, deteriorates quite a lot <laughs> during. So it's, again, it makes you wonder why people put themselves through this because <laughs> you're going to finish it in a irritable, sad, depressed, and unhappy state. But it's worth it for the payoff, right? I was going to say you probably go through phases of yes. getting down, but towards so, the end, when you finish, right, you get the ultimate exhilaration, don't you? And that's the romanticism of endurance yeah. is conquering, yes. and, and that's why when you watch comrades marathon. Aside from watching the winners, the best part of the race is watching the people who finish just before the end because totally. there's a there's a certain euphoric achievement that they've got from running for 11 hours and 57 minutes instead of 12 hours and one. Mm. I mean, it's two minutes over 12 hours is mm. the difference between <laughs> euphoria and devastation. But that's – and it's the same. Any, any endurance task people set themselves, you know, uh, finishing it's the romanticism part mm. of it. So – but it's interesting, like – there are definitely people who are better at this emotional management than others. Yeah. Um, you, we both know people who would just be able to go out and do things and just go all day. Mm. And they seem to almost just shut everything off. And the bubble 
protects them for the mm. however long, whether it's an Everesting they're doing. They don't think about a, all the problems that are going to be coming up. They just that do that's it. it's got to be something in the personality that is able yeah. to actually just shut out distractions. And I mean, when you spoke to Lachlan Morton, you sort of asked him a question about this, and it's yeah, you're going to have bad periods, and you have to have a mental frame that's going to respond well to bad periods. And you're going to have good moments mm. and you have to have that mental. So there's probably a discipline of psychology that's going to teach you like, what, what is it when I go through a bad patch and I haven't even reached halfway? Mm. What do I tell myself in order to get through it? Mm. And so that's the challenge. And if you can solve that problem, you'll finish. Yeah. If you can't, well, you yeah. probably didn't make the start line because after a while you learn that you can't do it. Yeah. Very I interesting. I, I don't want to end up on a, on a negative note here, but it is probably worth asking this question. We talk about exercise and we've talked about how the body's adapted to endurance exercise. Is there a point where it's it's too much? Because we talk about these incredible endurance events that people are out there. The Ironman franchise, the ultra distance running trail, all that sort of thing mm. is out there. The training involved in doing those events is, you know, to, to my mind, some of it excessive. Um can you can you do too much? Is there are the consequences to doing too much? Yeah, of course. Um and we see it in overtraining acutely. And then you also see it chronically. You get people who are addicted to exercise to the point that it becomes almost pathological. We we yeah. both we both know people who've run themselves and cycled themselves into harm because they do so much of it and effectively it becomes a replacement for something else. <laughs> Yeah. You know, if it wasn't for exercise, they might have had an eating disorder or a psychi- psychiatric disorder and so on. And, mm. and of course, there's a point at which your reliance and your use of exercise becomes harmful as opposed to a good, positive, constructive way to deal with that. Yeah. Because it, because it does cause physical problems that will potentially, you know, REDS mm. is a consequence of excessive exercise relative to energy intake. Now, yeah. okay, there's two sides to that particular equation, but one of them is too much exercise for your situation. Mm. So, of course, the answer is yes. Where, where a lot of people take this, and this is where it's good news, is that there has been, it's probably a decade old now, this theory that ultra-endurance and endurance exercise damages the heart in the long term. Yes. So the theory goes… Heart? So, so swimmers and you get cyclist heart, runner's heart, yeah. that's a positive adaptation to exercise because with the demand when you exercise regularly, your blood flow demands go up, your heart gets bigger as a consequence. You get a thicker heart wall and a bigger heart chamber. Your heart becomes better at its job, which is a pump. So you get yeah. a better pump. That's a positive adaptation. But it can, if you've got certain underlying pathologies or with excessive training, it could in theory become part of what is thought to be a low probability problem. So for instance, there's one theory that athletes are more prone to atrial fibrillation. So that's, fibrillation is that fluttering of the heart muscle. We've all heard of, seen it or heard, that's where you get shocked back into rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an arrhythmia, sorry, this is fibrillation. So, so athletic populations are about five times more likely to be diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Part of that is that an athletic person is more likely to notice it. So it's a diagnostic issue, not a real one. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. But part of it might be real. It might be that athletes cause themselves to be more likely to get atrial fibrillation. Now, that's because the heart muscle potentially gets bigger and a bigger muscle is more likely to have a fibrillation in response to a slight irregularity in the electrical signal, if that makes sense. 
so that's 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 part of the the it's I guess it's a concern, but there's no evidence that that has any real clinical bearing on risk of death. So when studies look at athletes, people who run or cycle or do exercise regularly, they don't find that those people are less likely to die. In fact, just the opposite. Mm. People who are regularly active are much more likely to live longer. Right. Now, that's complicated because there's lots of correlated factors. For instance, people who exercise are probably more likely to eat healthier. Mm. They're less likely to smoke. And then, of course, the act of exercise makes them less likely to be obese, makes them less likely to have high blood pressure, makes them less likely to have diabetes. And so all those different things that exercise affects are contributing to the benefits of exercise. So it's very difficult to evaluate exercise independent of the others. Mm. And one of the frustrating things that has been done by scientists and researchers is they will take a group of 20,000, 50,000 runners and they'll look at how often they exercise, how many hours a week they train. And then they'll relate their risk of dying to their training. And what they get is a, is a, what's called the J-shaped curve. You know that concept? Yeah, yeah. So doing a little bit of exercise is good. Uh, no, so doing no exercise is bad. Yeah. Then as you do some exercise, your risk of death drops. But then at some point it goes back up again. And that's where people said, ah, look at that. Mm. These guys who run 10 hours a week instead of three are more likely to die than the ones who run three. Yeah. And then, okay, now what do we make of this? You know, too much exercise could kill you. But the problem that, so statistical quick high-level lesson is when they look at those kinds of relationships, they they use a tool called the regression analysis, okay? Mm. And one of the things in regression is that you try and correct or adjust for all the things other than exercise. So what ends up happening is they'll take someone who runs 10, 15 hours a week and they'll compare them to someone who does nothing, but they will correct for the blood pressure, they'll correct for the body mass, they'll correct for smoking, they'll correct for diabetes, they'll correct for coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis, Mm. cholesterol levels, and then they'll say, look, there's no difference. Mm. But that's ridiculous because effectively what you're saying is that if you take away all the health benefits of running, running has no health benefits. Well, obviously, it's a a stupid statistical. Now, sometimes in stats, it's necessary, like drinking a glass of red wine every night makes you live longer well but the people who can afford a glass of red wine every night tend to be wealthier and we know and we know wealthy people live longer so so sometimes you have to correct in that instance you have to correct for socioeconomic status because otherwise you can't tease apart the effect of wine versus wealth does that make sense yeah but in the case of running or cycling or exercise training you don't want to tease them apart because the mechanism by which exercise helps is that thing the blood pressure, the diabetes, and so on. Yeah. So when when I listen to the point to the listeners is this: is if you ever read a headline that says too much running can kill you, data shows that those who exercise more don't don't live longer. They are almost certainly making this mistake. Yeah. Of of statistically filtering out the very things that make it beneficial for you. Mm. So that's that's the. It's quite news. difficult to do a study that. Very difficult. You'd actually almost have to study a whole bunch of smokers that exercised. Yes, you'd have to do it prospectively and you'd have yes. to take a bunch of people mm. who who start out in a certain place and then mm. you add exercise to the mix. Yes. And to half of them. Well, they and still the other maintain half. those bad habits. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. I like your scientific method thinking. It's very good. <laughs> I've learned from you. The other, the, other, the other study you can do just on the other extreme is don't control anything. 
So in other words, these studies are looking at how much you train and how long you live, but they control and they statistically filter out all those good things that exercise does, body mass and fat and uh, diabetes and smoking and cholesterol. The other way you can do it is just just test people and say, who's the fittest and how long do they live? Yeah. Forget about whether they smoke, forget yeah. about their BMI, forget about their genetic predisposition to certain disease or not. And what, what's happened there is, and this is a study that was done, I think, in Cleveland. They, they've literally got like 120,000 people's data, massive data set. Sure. The fitter you are, and they measure fitness by looking at your VO2 max, if you're in the top 2% for VO2 max, your risk of dying, I, I remember reading this, is 80% lower than if you're in the bottom 20%. Risk of dying of any early. cause, of any right. cause, okay. so mortality, all cause mortality yeah, yeah, yeah. is 0.2. So it's, you, you have 20%, one-fifth the risk of someone who's classified as low fitness. Mm. Even if you're in the top 2% compared to the top quarter, mm. it's about 25% less likely to die. So now nah, there's genetic factors there, there's lifestyle, there's behavior, all those things. But the, uh, the point is that by outcome, which is fitness, there is a very strong inverse relationship. The fitter you are, the more likely you are to live longer, right. the less likely you are to die. And that, that should be the take-home message. Yeah. Now, again, the studies are comparing very fit people to potentially the healthy, unfit person, and then they're filtering out all those behaviors, and they're no different. Well, of course. I will throw a fly in the soup here because I don't know. I'm sure it was a study that we actually referenced the story, but we ran a story in Runner's World a couple of years ago where the headline was why smoking, sitting is the new smoking, mm. which essentially the conclusion of it was, and it, I'm sure it was, I'm pretty sure it was based on some science research that we got, and it was saying that you were better off exercising and continuing to smoke yeah. than you were not stopping smoking but not exercising. Yeah, that's not a fly in the soup. That's that's extra ex, extra yeah. toppings in the soup. What, what, what yes. goes in soup? That's extra flavor that's in the soup. Extra mozzarella on the pizza. That's extra mozzarella. <laughs> on the, that's extra flavor in the soup because that same Cleveland study that I just mentioned where the top 2.5% fitness, fitness-wise, the, the, the people with the top 2.5% VO2 maxes were one-fifth as likely to die as the compared to those with low fitness. Remember I mentioned right. that? That magnitude of benefit is the same as smoker versus non-smoker. Right. It's the same as having diabetes versus not. Yes. It's the same as having high cholesterol or coronary artery disease versus not. Yes. So, so in, that, in that sense, it's exactly what the so stats bear out. the measure of your ability to overcome disease and early death yeah, yeah, so, rather than right. other factors. Right. So if you have a choice of interventions, adding fitness to a person mm. is going to make the same difference as taking away their cigarettes. But if you could, if you had to keep everything the same, and you added fitness, they'd be better off. Right. It's it makes a massive difference. It is it is the miracle drug. Yeah. In effect, it's not Amazing. a drug. You have yeah. to earn your way to this drug's benefits. But that's the point. So so as a way almost to like tie the loop on this discussion of endurance is yeah, there's lots of these challenges, and endurance stretches our physiology sometimes beyond the limits. You know, we've spoken about heat and hyperglycemia and so on. And it challenges the heart. Mm. You know, so there's there's some evidence that you get these calcium coronary artery calcium deposits in the blood vessels, and those aren't good. But in endurance athletes, they don't seem to cause death the way they do in non-trained persons, right. um, because they have it. Anyway, it gets technical, but they're they're mm. stable plaques, not not clumpy, lumpy, soft plaques. Right. So the point is that we can challenge our physiology and our psychology and our emotional state with endurance exercise mm. without worrying about the risk of doing harm. But just be careful about becoming obsessive about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think to, just to wrap it up from my perspective, and I, I love the idea 
that you said very early on this podcast that endurance is about solving the problems. I mm. hope that for those of you who have listened today that we've uh, potentially given you the idea of the problems you need to solve and how you do those. We'll be covering some of that uh, throughout the month of February. And uh, we look forward to hearing your questions. If you have any questions that are focused around the sport of en- any kind of endurance activity, let us know and we'll yeah, get onto those questions. Yeah, that's, that's, for the pa- that's patrons especially. Yes. When we, we do when we do the fourth endurance episode of this series – that will be a question and answer and the patrons will be the ones whose questions I will take. So you go to patreon.com, the science of sport. You you pledge a small amount monthly to our efforts. And then for that pleasure, I will do my best to answer (laughs) your your questions. Yes, it is only for patrons. So patrons, you can listen up and uh, you're very welcome to send. If you're not a patron, as I say, just uh, join us on our platform. It doesn't cost that much money to be a patron. And um, or a patron on Patreon. I always get a bit confused. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just let us know what you think about this podcast and any other subjects around the sport of endurance. But uh, from us for now, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.